yourselves a hand. You, were, you, uh, you figured out the church calendar. You know, the way we do it at AC3 is we really mess up the church calendar a lot throughout the year as a way of weeding down to make sure we have the smartest people at our church. So you, are, you have been culled from the herd and you are now the smartest. So I'm glad that you're here uh, taking in the series on Gideon. I think there's some great lessons here in this Old Testament story. We're going to wrap it in this skin of this 40s radio show thing. It's going to be a lot of fun. And serendipitously, uh, locally, KCMS, the uh, spirit uh, radio, is uh, making us the, one of their promotional churches in September. So that's going to be kind of neat. So expect this next week. Uh, um, Spirit Radio realized that they have a lot of their audience just is not planted at a church anywhere, and so they try to then connect them to local churches throughout the Puget Sound. So next uh, week, they'll be doing that here, and they'll welcome maybe lots of visitors to our church, so we'll be happy to uh, be hosts for them, and I'm sure that you will extend them a warm AC3 welcome when they show up next week. So that's kind of cool. A radio station will be promoting us in the middle of our radio thing, so lots of fun. Let's pause for a second and, uh, and pray. God, uh, before we look into this, I just want to remind myself, remind everybody who's in this room, that you're the teacher, and if there's really a life change that's going to happen, it happens because of you, that your Holy Spirit uh, grabs hold of our hearts and our minds, and then something transformational and spiritual uh, and supernatural happens on the inside, and I pray that that would happen today, that you would be the speaking voice and that we would be eager listeners and ready to hear your voice. In Jesus' name, amen. So I got a friend who emailed me this week. He has a kind of a problem at work. He's an employer, uh, runs a tech firm down in Seattle, and um, he had an employee who he caught lying, and it wasn't the first time. So this guy had been caught deceiving him several times, and it wasn't like these were catastrophic issues, but because it had been repeated, uh, it seemed like sort of reckless. This guy knew that harsh consequences were coming down the pipe. And so this is what my friend uh, said to me in the email. I asked him if I could share it because it was just kind of caught me. He said, I'm concerned something deep down in him wants to destroy his own future. And I thought, wow, you know, how often does that describe some people that maybe you and I know? How many of you would say that you know somebody or you maybe know someone who knows somebody who would be described as self-destructive, Right. And there's someone that you love, that you're voting for, that you are rooting for, and you give a second chance, and you give a third chance, and yet they seemed almost pathologically drawn to the same behavior that's destroying their future over and over again. And it just devolves back into it. Well, as tragic as that is in an individual, I just want you to imagine an entire culture locked in that kind of cycle. Imagine there was like a whole nation that was self-destructive, that was hell-bent it seems, on destroying its own future. That, friends, is the context of the Gideon story. And so if you want to understand how Gideon begins, it begins in the context of a very bleak assessment of Gideon's culture around 3,000 years ago in the ancient Near East. Here's how the Bible describes it in Judges chapter 6, verse 1. The Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Now what's interesting about that line is that it's repeated in the book of Judges eight times. Eight words repeated eight times. Now the Israelites did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. Usually it's accompanied by one other word that's added to the list, and that word is again. <laughs> so that just underlines the idea of what a cyclical pattern the nation of Israel has gotten themselves into. It's the cycle of self-destruction and rescue. 
self-destruction and grace. And it repeats over and over again. The cycle, by the way, marks not just the book of Judges. It actually marks the entire story of the Old Testament. And so I want to back up for a second, and maybe some of you aren't like really up to speed on what that story is, so we'll just kind of give you the, the grand setting of the entire Old Testament and ask ourselves, how did Israel become a nation in the first place? So here's how it started. It begins with rescue. The nation of Israel begins in a rescue operation by God who lifts them up out of slavery in Egypt. So you know the story. Charlton Heston waves a big stick over the Red Sea. Right, And then the people of Israel walk out on dry land and now they're free. Right, Now they're God's people and they're moving on to the promised land. Now, what was God's hoped for outcome from that amazing and miraculous bit of grace, that rescue operation? What, what, what did He want to come out of that? Well, He wanted relationship and reformation to come out of that. That's what He wanted. He wanted these slaves to turn into freemen. He wanted these... Uh, people who had been walking in sort of a a steeped-in Egyptian paganism for 400 years to walk in right relationship with the one true God and right relationship with one another. That's what God wanted to come out of that rescue. Now the question is this, what motivates one to enter into right relationship, to reform their behaviors and uh, practices? The impetus for all that relationship and reformation is always gratitude. So the answer is gratitude. God expects that out of rescue comes gratitude and out of gratitude for being saved from harsh circumstances and consequences, it it leads to a reformation of relationship. That people move in a different kind of way. But here's the thing. Like my friend's employee, that's not what happened with Israel. First, second, third chances and grace and rescue did not lead to reformation and relationship. Gratitude did not lead to relationship. Instead, um, uh, complacency led to rebellion. So instead of gratitude leading to relationship, you've got uh, uh, complacency leading to rebellion. And what happens after rebellion? Well, what happened with Israel, what's going to happen to my friend's employee, very likely, is there was going to be loss. And we have another word for that here, just to keep the R's rolling, retribution. Retribution. So just read the second part of Judges chapter 6, verse 1. Okay, so the Lord handed them over to Midian for seven years and they oppressed Israel. Now I get it, I throw up that word uh, retribution and it's a harsh word, right? It's a harsh word. But can we just admit, like if we just look at things objectively and dispassionately, that when you engage in destructive behavior, what comes out of that? Destruction. That's what happens. You engage in destructive behavior, something's going to get destroyed. A relationship's going to get destroyed. Your health will get destroyed. Maybe your very life gets destroyed. That's just what happens. It's just natural consequence. That's really all that retribution is. It's just sort of a natural commensurate compensation for wrong action. That's what retribution is. Here's another word, justice. Justice. And no one's opposed to justice, right? But justice is harsh. It is. And it was harsh in this particular case. My friend's employee is going to face justice. He's likely going to lose his job. The Israelites lost lots of things. They lost their freedom. They lost their security. They became oppressed. In fact, the author goes into great detail. Let's read. Judges chapter 6, keep going in verse 2. The Israelites made hiding places, the author says, in mountains, caves, and, and mountain strongholds to protect themselves from Midian. 
And whenever Israel planted crops, Midian, Amalek, and Canaan came and damaged the crops. They left nothing for Israel to live on. Not one sheep, cow, or donkey. Like swarms of locusts, they came with their livestock and their tents. They and their camels could not be counted. They came into the land only to ruin it. So the Israelites became very poor because of Midian. I mean, that's bad, friends. Right? That's really bad. But it's just natural consequence of disobedience. You know, people tend to downplay this in our age. And we live, can we admit this? We live in a bit of a soft era. Where the idea of justice, like the harshness of it, is I think downplayed and minimized. And we think everyone deserves great results and, and consequence despite or in spite of whatever behavior they may be engaged in. We tend to now disassociate good living with good results and bad living with bad results. We've like, we've, we've like severed the tie, the correlation. And so now I get it. I mean, you may think that you're involved and there's a tide of random injustice and unfairness that has beset you. And maybe that's what's happened because that does happen. Bad things do happen to good people. In fact, there's a, an entire book of the Bible that's dedicated to the idea. Job is dedicated to the idea that there's a guy whose bad consequences and bad circumstances are not connected in any way to his behavior. And what gives? 40 chapters of that. So there is a nod to this in the scripture. There's no question, but let's be honest. Sometimes we blame God that life is unfair, but what's really going on is justice. What's really going on is retribution. What's happening is there's a commensurate response in measure with behavior. That's what's really going on. And sometimes we don't get it. And instead we lift the fist at heaven. In fact, there's a Bible verse that talks about that. Proverbs 9 verse 3. I've, I've trotted it out in the counselor's room every once in a while, carefully, um, judiciously, but the Bible says, a man's own foolishness ruins his life, but his heart rages against the Lord. So sometimes that, that happens, right? I mean, we're, we're sitting there uh, feeling like a random set of injustice has just besieged us, but really there is some kind of connection to what we're thinking or what we're doing. So, retribution follows rebellion, but that's not the end of the cycle. And so if that seems harsh to you, let's keep reading. What comes next after retribution is repentance. Repentance. And so if we keep reading, Judges chapter 6, verse 6 says, So the Israelites became very poor because of Midian and cried out to the Lord for help. So now here's what I've noticed, okay? When it comes to this repentance piece that is cycling us back to what? back to rescue, that that's a long drawn out arrow in the diagram because sometimes it's a process. Sometimes at the beginning of repentance, really what's happening, I'm stinging because of pain in my life, but I'm not really sorry. Now you who are parents here and you're engaged in raising good human beings, you understand how this goes. That repentance is sometimes a process. So you're trying to coax your children into true contrition. To see that what they did was destructive to themselves or to others. And so you may even coax the word out of their mouth. Sorry. It goes something like this. Sorry. I mean, I, oh, I wish I had a, a nickel for every time I heard sorry said in a way that wasn't sorry at all. Right? So it's like, listen baby, you said the word, but it's missing the music of repentance. 
right? You said the word, but everything else, body language, tone, intonation, and your subsequent behavior says you don't get it. Other times, repentance will come like this. It'll, it'll come with a kind of contrite, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And it's really what, what do I have to say right now to make the pain shut off? And again, there's no real recognition of why, of what's actually happened here. So guess what God does? God does Israel the favor of giving them that perspective, of giving them the insight. You're upset because Midian keeps running through the land taking all your stuff. And you're locked in pain and God help. But, but what they need is why. And so God obliges them and he sends them a prophet. Now it's not Gideon. No, that's, that's not the piece of the story we're at yet. We're just the repentance piece. They need help with the repentance piece. Gideon comes in at the rescue piece. So check this out. God will send them a prophet. Verse 7. When the people of Israel cried out to the Lord for help because of what the Midianites had done to them, the Lord sent a prophet to them. He said, this is what the Lord God of Israel says. I brought you up out of Egypt. I took you away from slavery. I rescued you from the power of the Egyptians and those who oppressed you. I forced people out of your way. I gave you their land. Now let me pause because the prophecy is not done, but what he's, he's letting them enter into the cycle of self-destruction and grace, right? And what part is he now describing? He's describing rescue. He's saying, God rescued you. Just a little history lesson here, uh, Israel. God loves you. He adores you. He pulled you up out of the grip of your oppressors and set your feet on solid ground. Remember, He loves you. Love, affection, grace, grace, grace. That's the part. But the prophet keeps going. Verse 10. I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You must never fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you will live. What part is that? He's continuing to describe the cycle. What part is this? This is the reformation relationship part. I rescue you and now in gratitude do not fall prey to the gods of the nations around you. Live in new relationship. Right relationship with me. Right relationship with one another. And what's key to that? is that you put away those gods and follow me alone. Now I know how that hits you. Some of you in this room, you, just, you, you got that whole jealous God thing in your head and you said to yourself, what kind of petty, insecure deity needs everybody to think he's awesome? Okay, Right? You thought it. You know, so let me just bring it out. Here's the deal. is that God understands the radical consequences that go along with allegiance to false gods. And we now know, by the way, vividly, the associated practices that went along with worship of Baal and all the other gods of the ancient Near East. So, bestiality, uh, infanticide, and uh, polygamy, homosexuality, all of these things that were creating a deep, deep culture of destruction were just par for the course. If you were a Canaanite, these things went along with how you lived. And here's what God says, I rescued you. Leave that behind. And no longer live in destructive patterns that break relationship with me and with everybody else. Don't live like that anymore. In, in, in gratitude response, live in new relationship and reformation of character. But 
he keeps going. The prophet continues. You can, you, we already know, you can break two ways, right? We can break towards that relationship piece or the other way. And so the next line is, but you have not obeyed me. So what part of the cycle is this? That's the rebellion piece, obviously. You chose the wrong response to rescue. Instead of gratitude, reformation, you chose complacency, rebellion. That's what you chose. And here's the thing, at AC3. That's the end of the prophecy. That's it, Period end of message now that's fascinating to me and a little bit funny too so it's like what do we do now that's not sad nothing is said it's just like i rescued you rebelled period end of message and i think that's kind of funny because i'm thinking about how they're 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 slogging through the midianite problem and they're needing maybe a little bit they think they need more from god it reminds me of that scene from the movie as good as it gets you remember this movie jack nicholson has this odious character right and he feels like he's dying because his life's coming to an end because the relationship is falling apart and so he's got a friend who's trying to help him and all he's trying to do not give him a bunch of advice or what to do next he's just trying to get him to see how he truly feels that's all he's doing and what does jack say in response to this he says look i'm very intelligent if you're going to give me hope you're going to have to do better than you're doing and i mean i'm drowning here and you're describing the water. And I feel like that's what Israel would say to the prophets. The prophet says, God rescued, and you rebelled, period. It's like, yeah, what's ne- I'm drowning here. You're describing the water. What next? What, are we spo- what does this mean? What are we supposed to do? Is he saying that he's going to give us another chance? Is he saying there's no more chance? It's like, what's the follow-up? And guess what? God just lets him stew in that for a little bit. You're just going to go on a timeout and you're going to think about what you've done. (laughs) And so, unbeknownst to them, while they wonder and wait what God has in mind, God is already at work to bring the cycle to completion. And the cycle, by the way, in the Bible always begins and always ends with God's loving initiation. It always begins and ends with rescue. And that's what God has in mind. And that's where Gideon shows up in the story. Let's read. So verse 11 now, chapter 6, the messenger of the Lord came and sat under the oak tree in Ophrah that belonged to Joash from Abizar's family. Joash's son Gideon was beating out wheat in a wine press to hide it from the Midianites. The messenger of the Lord appeared to Gideon and said, the Lord is with you, mighty warrior. So this messenger is to be identified, by the way, with God himself, appearing in human form. And it's not the only time this happens in the Old Testament. And the Jews had wondered about that a lot in their scripture. That this happens, that that there's a messenger of the Lord, but then it's like it is the Lord. It's the messenger of the Lord, but it is the Lord. And it led to a whole string of theology that that was kind of like the two powers. And that's one of the reasons, friends, why when the Jews that followed Jesus started proclaiming him as incarnate son, that they weren't laughed out of Jerusalem. Because it was like, wait a minute, there is that sense in which God is not a simplistic unity, but there is something plural inside his own nature, and it shows up right here. We'll talk about that more in extended if you like, but here's God showing up in human form, and Gideon doesn't even recognize it, doesn't even realize who he's talking to. He's too busy trying to keep from being spotted by the Midianites. So look at what he's doing, right? And a little cultural context, and you'll understand it. He's in a wine press. And what is a wine press? Well, a wine press was a big stone pit, and you'd throw grapes into a wine press, and the women and children would take off their shoes, and they'd squish out the grapes, and then they'd pull out the, um, the juice. That's what a wine press is. It's a, a depression. It's a pit in the ground. But what's he doing? He's not 
treading out grapes in the wine press. That's what it's for. That's not what he's using it for. What is he using it for? The Bible says he's using it to thresh wheat. Now, how does one thresh wheat? Well, you, you, know, you, you grind it up and separate the wheat from the chaff. Then you throw it up in the air, usually on a blanket of some kind. You throw it up in the air. Then the wind blows all the chaff away, and the seeds come down, and that, there's your wheat. That, that's how you thresh wheat. He's doing it in a pit. So you can imagine there's a lot of wind in a pit, right? So it's interesting that it just kind of underlines this idea that he's doing something very, very inefficiently. He's using something not for its intended purpose. Why? Because he's afraid. That's the picture of him. In some sense, cowering. Okay, you see him there in the pit, and it's like, and down he goes, right? That's, that's, that's how you need to kind of see Gideon here doing his thing, trying to keep it from the minions. He's afraid, which brings into ri- vivid relief the irony of God addressing him thus. God is with you, mighty warrior. Okay, so you say to yourself, okay, that's funny. Is that irony? Is that sarcasm? Is God mad? God is with you, mighty warrior. No, no. See, this is a fascinating thing. Um, this is not a joke. Uh, God probably is into irony. I think he has a delightful sense of humor. But what you sometimes don't realize is he connects deeply Im- important work in your life with humor. And some of you might recognize that. Like there's some funny episodes in your followership of God. you know. And here's one of those episodes where irony turns into prophecy. Irony turns into prophecy. I'll give you another example. Fast forward all the way into the New Testament, and some of you know that Jesus' lead disciple's given name was Simon. So what's Simon like? His character is painted consistently across four Gospels and on even into the letters of the New Testament. Here's a cat, and we know exactly what kind of guy he was like. A perfect word for for Simon is impetuous. So he's up one day and he's down the next. One day he's swearing loyal fealty to Jesus for the rest of his life, I'll follow you forever off a cliff and into death. And then the next day he's denying, I don't know the guy, I don't know the guy. One day he's being commended by Jesus in front of the other apostles, man alive, God has given you fresh and amazing insight. And the next day he's being rebuked, get behind me, Satan. Okay, that's Simon. He's up, he's down mercurial there's another word for this guy okay so that's simon and that's a consistent picture of his flawed character so what's the one word that you wouldn't use to describe a guy like that steady that's probably the word you wouldn't use to describe the guy not steady so what are some nicknames that might come to your mind for a guy who is the opposite of steady waffle I mean, I don't know. I mean, you could think, right? All sorts of nicknames that would come to your mind that you could nickname a guy who was like this, okay? So here's Jesus. Sees Peter. The very first time, he looks him in the eyeball and says, Simon, son of John, I'm going to call you Petros. And as you all know, the Greek word Petros means the rock. The opposite of impetuous. The opposite of mercurial. The epitome of steady. The epitome of foundational and unmovable and secure. I mean, this is irony that turns into prophecy because that's who Peter will be because the entire New Testament church is launched off of his back. I mean, that's an amazing thing. That's funny. But with God, irony is sometimes prophecy and it certainly was with Gideon. Greetings, fearful man hiding in a pit. 
You will be a mighty warrior. You will be a mighty warrior. See, God sees what you can be. He sees all the potentialities that He baked into you when you were conceived. He sees that. You may not see that. He sees that. Now, I want you to begin to consider what some of those things might be that God sees in you that you cannot see. God is with you, mighty warrior. A lot of you might consider you have nothing to offer. You could never even begin to attempt great things for God. But what if God sees something in you that you don't see? He sees what you can be and not what you are. Now when God pushes on him like this, and I bet he might be pushing on you in some way, when you feel that burning in your spirit, usually it's related to something that's out of control, something that's not right in the world, in your family, in the church, something that just isn't the way God wants it to be. And that thing irritates you and irks you. And, and we'll talk a little bit more about that in extended. What is that thing, that, that inner impression of in, inside of you? But when that happens, God is calling something out in you. You might not see it, but I think you could be a teacher. You might not see it, but I think you could be a leader. You might not see it, but I think you're a shepherd. You might not see it, but I think you're an encourager. I see a model parent in you. I see a racial reconciler in you. I see a justice seeker in you. I see an evangelist in you. I see all these things. And you say, whoa. And when God presses that on you, what's your response? Well, maybe your response is like, Gideon, push back hard. Is that what you do? You push back hard? That's what happened. He responds to the idea that God was with him by debating. Like he wants to engage God in debate. Here we read verse 13. Gideon said to him, please sir, if the Lord is with us, why has all this happened? And where are all his wonders that our fathers told us about? Have you ever said that? You say, you know, God operates differently today. He must. Because all these wonders and big miracles and I've never seen God do anything. So maybe that's Gideon. And maybe there's something to do with the way you've responded to God in faith that you can say, I've never seen God do anything. So here's Gideon saying, I've never seen God do anything. I mean, they say he's great and wonderful. They say, hasn't the Lord brought us out of Egypt? And I guess he did it because here we are in the promised land. But now, 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 the Lord has abandoned us and handed us over to Midian. What this means, this response, I mean, this is obviously building in him, right? And it just pops like a balloon. Just boom. It's obviously irritating him. And it's, all we needed was one little impetus for this to spill out all over. All this pushback, all this anger, and all this indignation. And by the way, it's very closely related to the calling God gives him. So this all spills out, right, to God. And uh, that means he got the message of the prophet. He, uh, he got the message. He just didn't get the message, if you know what I mean. He got the message. He just didn't understand the message. The message, as we re recall, is very simple. And what was it? God rescued, you rebelled. Period. End of message. Now, Gideon extrapolates. And he begins to impugn God's motives based on that simple message. God rescued, we rebelled, therefore. Therefore what? He concludes, therefore, because God rescued and we rebelled that, and that there's retribution in play, that therefore God is done with us. Therefore God hates us. Therefore God has abandoned us. Therefore God must not like us anymore. Therefore God will never give us another chance. Midian's walking all over us and God has allowed it to happen so he's not with us. Therefore he is not with us. I'm sorry. I mean Gideon's basically flat contradicting what the Lord is telling him face to face. That's his interpretation of the evidence. Now, have you ever misinterpreted the evidence? 
Have you ever misinterpreted the evidence about God? Because here's Gideon misinterpreting the evidence. And I mean maybe like literally misinterpreting the evidence. Like you read something like in the Bible, in a story, and you say, oh, this is God and he's capricious and untrustworthy and, uh, and um, I can't trust him. And, and maybe, maybe you've misinterpreted the evidence. You just didn't draw the right conclusion. I mean, yeah, the right data, yeah, the data staring you in the face, but you drew the wrong conclusion. That happened to me when I was a kid. There was a time when, um, it was a Saturday morning, and, um, and we were, I was working with Dad chopping wood, and we did this a lot, all summer, all winter long. See, my, my parents, had, in their wisdom, they said, you know, we could save a lot of money up here in mid, middle Canada uh, by heating our house with wood all winter long. So what are we going to do to heat our home with wood? Well, we've got 50 acres of basically wooded farmland, um, and we have three boys... score one for our bank account so what they did was you know that was our deal we chopped wood all winter long and um one of these saturday mornings that's what we're doing and i'm engaging in chopping wood dad's uh, a part of that and um and i'm talking to him that day about maybe having one of my friends over after our chores you know after the chores are done you know i knew what he would say if i was going to want to bail on him there it's like are you kidding we're going to do the chores so uh, I was just trying to be very clear, you know, maybe after we're all done here, and dad seemed very resistant, like strangely resistant, weirdly resistant, and why? Why? I, I'm drawing all sorts of conclusions. Did he resent me having fun? I mean, my dad was like a super social guy. Like, did he resent me having friends and doing things with my friends? I mean, I was doing the work. I was going to finish my chores. When we were done with the chores, that friend actually called me and in the, in the middle of the phone call, I begged my dad to be able to have him come over and maybe stay the night. I'm like, come on! One of these things, right? And dad was like, flat, nope, no, not today, right? And, and can, can I just say that all the evidence to me at that moment suggested that dad is mean, that dad is a killjoy, that dad is antisocial, that dad is capricious, meaning he just acts randomly. He doesn't have good reasons for the things that he does. He just acts in a sort of an emotional way. He doesn't really love me. That was the bottom line conclusion that I'm drawing from this interaction. How could I draw any other conclusion from that evidence? And I just remember just boiling inside me. In fact, so much, I pushed back, and I didn't normally do this. Like, you push back on my dad, you know, sort of at threat of your own life. You know, if you've seen him, my, my dad's six foot four, 300 pounds, you know, you just... You, you know, staring down the barrel of a, maybe a, a stint in a wheelchair. You know, so I, I didn't really want to push back too hard. But I, I remember out of character, I pushed back because I thought it was so unjust. And I was braving potential discipline to voice my displeasure. And finally, I just remember this. My dad's stone face sort of gave way to a heavy sigh. <sighs> Come here. He called me over and I said, oh, that's it. That's it. I, I have pushed it too far now. But then as I abro- approached him out of his pocket, he produced two tickets to a Winnipeg Jets hockey game. And he said, uh, Ditchard, that was his name for me. Uh, my middle name is Douglas. So he smashed Richard and Douglas together and got Ditchard. So, <laughs> Ditchard, uh, I wanted to surprise you later, but I guess, you know, he was referring to my mood. Uh, but I guess I should show you these now. Let's go to a hockey game tonight. <laughs> I remember I just stood there, dumbfounded, slack-jawed, realizing how wrong I was about everything, about everything I had assumed about God's motor, God, my dad. Uh, (laughs) He was a God to me. Uh, 
about my dad's motives. I had just misread the evidence. Got the totally wrong conclusion about the situation, and I cried in that moment, honestly, and then we went off to that hockey game and had a great bonding time, father and son. Well, here's Gideon, and he's misread the evidence. And maybe you've misread the evidence. Would you be open, at least to just considering that you might have misread the evidence? You're drawing the wrong conclusions about God, about His character. This isn't abandonment. What is this? It's discipline. And the Bible will say in New Testament, Hebrews chapter 12, the Lord disciplines those He, someone finish the sentence, loves. And unbeknownst to anybody, God is getting ready to complete the cycle of grace. He is planning a rescue in response to their repentance. But now how is he going to do that? We keep reading. Judges 6 verse 14. The Lord turned to him and said, Go in the strength you have and deliver Israel from the power of Midian. Am I not sending you? Now I love this line. It blows me away every time I read it in two ways. Number one, that line. Am I not sending you? Now let me tell you where to put the emphasis in that sentence. It will completely change the meaning for you. A lot of you will read that sentence from God to Gideon. Am I not sending you? And you put the emphasis on I. Am I not sending you? To underline the idea that the magisterium of heaven has made a command and it's like you better go. Okay, you could put it there. But what if you put the emphasis on the word you? And now how do you read it? Am I not sending you? Think about this in the context of his complaint, right? He's just complained about the thing that bugs him, the thing that drives him crazy. Midian, the political situation, drives him bonkers. It's unjust, it's unfair, it's not right, and it's going on year after year, and it's bottled up inside, and all that venom spills out, and in response to that, God says, am I not sending you? Yeah, I, get, I, I, I see. I see what makes you mad. I'm sending you. You are going to be with me the beginning of the answer to the thing that drives you nuts. You are going to be an answer. You are going to be part of my answer to your own prayer. So you think about the injustice of the world, the bakier noodle, right? The gaps in the church's ministry. They say, why don't we do more of X or something like that? And you pray because you think that that's all that you can do. But have you ever come up from prayer and maybe any kind of complaining that you've done with God about that thing that drives you crazy. And have you ever heard God say, that's a great prayer. Now I'm sending you. I'm sending you. I think maybe sometimes the holy discontent inside you is actually an indicator of what God is preparing you for. And he's about to answer. And he's about to get involved. And he's about to power up and move in this situation. And he's about to use you. You, friend. Yes, you. But then here's the second thing, right? Go in the strength you have. I love the line. Because what's the Lord saying by that? As opposed to what? As opposed to the strength you don't have. So you might be sitting there saying, well, I can't go until X, Y, and Z. And he says, no, that's what you don't have. You don't have that stuff. So I want you to go in what you do have. I want you to go in the strength you have. What's the message? The message is that'll be enough. Like the line from the movie. That'll do, pig. You know, that'll do. That'll do. What do you got? What, what's, what's in your hand? That will be enough. 
That's all you need to worry about. You don't need to worry about outcomes. You don't need to worry about controlling how, where it goes from here. You just need to say, yes, Lord. I'll go with what you've already given me. Go in what you already have. There's opportunities, friend, that are already in front of you. There are resources that are already right here in your hot little hand. You say, well, that's not enough. You know, I can't give. We, our, our family, we can't do the tithing thing. That's very risky to give to God's purposes in the world. Well, when this gets bigger, then, you know, I know then we'll get faithful on that whole thing. You know, I think what God might say is go in the strength you have. Risk in the strength you have. To him who has been given uh, uh, little, who, he was responsible with little, Jesus said, will be entrusted with much. Just go with what you have. Obey what you already know. With the gifts that you already possess. And all next month we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about what God has already planted in you at the moment of new birth when he said, you're mine. Welcome into my family. Now here's a gift. Here's a divine enablement. And I've put it in you and you already have it. Go in that strength that you already have. You don't need Rick's gifts. You don't need somebody else's resources. Just go with what you have. You don't need to invent anything and you don't need somebody else's stuff. So, someone once said that God does not call the equipped. He equips the called. And that, I think, is what Gideon needs to hear because when God is pouring all this confidence into him, look what God's doing, by the way. He's just infusing confidence, right? I'm with you, mighty warrior, strength you already have, right? He's just infusing all this stuff into Gideon. And what's his response? Here's his response, verse 15. Please, Lord, how can I deliver Israel? Look, my family is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the youngest in my father's house. Message, pretty predictable, I'm nothing, I, 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 oh, I couldn't possibly. Humility, you know, just, oh, I'm so humble. I could never, never, I wouldn't presume to enforce myself on the kingdom of God, far be it from me. I don't have enough strength. I'm too small. I'm not good enough. I'm not strong enough. I come from a weak tribe. I'm the runt of the litter. Now you tell me, have you ever said something like that to God? And if so, then maybe you just hear it right from God. God's mouth to your ear today, the thing that he said to Gideon in response to your humble diatribe. Okay? He might respond thus. Verse 15, but I will be with you. But, but I, almighty sovereign of the universe, will be with you. But I will be with you. Trump card. Isn't that what that is? It's sort of a trump card to all your doubt. It's a trump card to all your, your misgivings. It's a trump card to all your, your inadequacies. He just trumps it right there and says, I'll be with you. And you will strike down Midian as if it were one man. I will be with you. So friend, um, you being small and feeling unworthy, inadequate, you say, oh, well, maybe, now you're beating yourself up because you're so, you know, you're feeling so inadequate. Stop it, okay? Here's the thing. Here's the thing. That feeling of inadequacy is good. It's, it's awesome, actually, because God has got you right where he wants you because in your inadequacy is the place that his strength is perfected. So at the moment you feel overwhelmed, perfect, perfect. That's just the right place to start. And we fast forward to what the Lord himself said to his apostle Paul when he was feeling overwhelmed and completely inadequate. And what did he say? 
2 Corinthians chapter 9, 12, verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. You feel weak? Perfect. Because that's where God's strength will be perfected. He likes you weak because apparently that's the way that he perfects his strength in you. And he says, I will be with you. What a promise. And I'll leave you with this. That promise, I will be with you, is at the same time incredible comfort and incredible confidence. Obviously incredible comfort, right? Because no matter what happens, like you'll launch out, friend, and you'll do something. And you will take action on what God has pressed in on your heart, in your family, at work, in your place of leisure, play, um, wherever, business, in the world, in the culture, in the city, in the church, you'll, take, you'll begin to take that action. You won't know what's going to come next. And, and it will be very scary. And God says, I'll be with you. you. You have everything because you have God. His comfort, His peace, His supra-circumstantial joy. And then you have unbelievable confidence because, listen, the woman of God who says, I've got God on my side, she is fearless and how can she not be because she is in some sense as as a called person is like deathless right like you can't be touched if god has you for this purpose at this time oh yeah you could die and there were people and soldiers involved in great and mighty battles and they died and some might say before their time but if they were involved in a great work then they died at just the right time and they died involved in a great thing that God had for them and they were like, with wild abandonment engaged in it because until they accomplished what they were here to do, they were in some sense deathless. And what, how would you live if you felt deathless? Boy, that would change the game, wouldn't it? You would do things differently. So I give this to you again, friend. Behold, the Lord is with you. And so he comes with unbelievable comfort and unbelievable confidence. Now rise up, mighty warrior. Let's pray. God, move in the church, Lord. Move in the church that we might finally take our place joining you in your work in this world to bring shalom peace to all the places where there is division and injustice, where there is oppression and hate, where the gospel is yet to go, where the good news of your forgiving love has yet to dawn on another soul, God, move us, Lord. Only help us now to see that you are with us and you call us to what we can be and maybe not what we see ourselves as. Give us this kind of comfort and confidence today, I pray, for Jesus' sake and the sake of his gospel in the world. Amen. Amen.